carbon capture, carbon storage, the fact that the gas might be used to replace coal, which is dirtier. Yeah. These are all the issues that have to be debated. The Paris Agreement, because it's the product of negotiations between sovereign states, like you saw what happened in the last COP in Glasgow. Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the student lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. The University of Law offers a range of undergraduate and postgraduate courses and master's degrees alongside an award-winning pro bono clinic so you can build up your legal experience while studying. And their experienced career service will enable you to put your best foot forward when launching your legal career. The courses are employment focused and based on real legal practice so you'll be better prepared for the workplace. Part-time and online study Options are available so you can work and study at the same time. Click the link in the description box of the podcast to find out more about the courses on offer. Hello everyone, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie, I'm an LLB law student, future trainee solicitor and the host of today's episode. Joining me today is Adam Heppenstall QC, a civil and commercial barrister and director of pupillage training at Henderson Chambers. During the episode, Adam and I discussed Henderson Chambers pupillage process and some of Adam's most noteworthy cases, which include the Nuclear Test Veterans Group Action, Siroxat Pharmaceutical Group Action and Total in respect of a climate change law challenge to a liquefied natural gas plant in Mozambique. So welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast, Adam. It's fantastic to have you on the show with us. Well, thank you very much uh, for inviting me. It is a pleasure. So I thought that we would kick off the interview by asking you to introduce yourself, your practice and your involvement in Henderson Chambers pupillage. Sure. So I was called to the bar in 1999. Um, I did my pupillage at Henderson Chambers. So I'm, I'm a homegrown pupil, did my 12 month pupillage there. I always done a range of cases, mainly in the sort of civil commercial law space. Uh, an important part of my practice has been working for the government. So since 2004, I was on the council's panel of, of uh, sorry, government's panel of junior counsel uh, on C panel and B panel and A panel. And then most recently in 2021, I took silk. Now, in terms of my role in Chambers, uh, I think I've got the title of something like Director of Pupillage Training. But basically, I'm in charge of pupillage and the recruitment uh, of uh, lateral hires within Chambers. Well, I must say you have a very impressive career and very important as well work that you have been doing. And a massive congratulations on taking silk. I, I just think it's outstanding the work that, you know, you have put into um, the profession and like, the law that you have managed to help change. Um, it, it clearly has all paid off all of your work. Um, and it is also quite impressive and really good to know that you've been at Henderson Chambers for um, such a long time. Uh, it's clearly a fantastic place to, to have a practice. So um, I wondered if you could tell us why you did choose a career at the bar. So um, when I was in year nine, there was uh, a room in our school, a sort of careers room, and the careers were, were alphabetically, like there were file for each career alphabetically around the room. And I didn't really get beyond B, which is where barristers were. And uh, I'm afraid that I did age 13 right to the chairman of the bar, uh, because, because that's what you had to do. You had to choose a folder look in the folder and then write a letter. So I wrote to the chairman of the bar. Uh, he wrote back. 
before then, I didn't even know what a barrister was, to be honest. And then I ended up going to do work experience, uh, basically sitting in the back of our local magistrate's court. Got some sort of uh, impression of, of what advocacy was all about. I was lucky enough that uh, in the place where I lived, we had a crown court. So st- started to go to crown courts. And then shadow, when I was in sixth form, I shadowed a barrister in Leeds and got a taste for it. And to be honest, since then, it hasn't really occurred to me to do anything else. So, so, so far, so good. This is hands down my favourite um, journey into law story, I must say. Um, do you remember what was in the category of A? It must have been terrible. Yeah, well, I don't know. I guess they're like architects <laughs> or, you know, I don't know, the commercial agents, things like that. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but it, it, this thing caught my caught my eye. I, I have no idea why. And and the, to be fair, that I, I my my parents claim they still got this letter from the chairman of the bar. I've I've not seen it since. But whatever it said was enough for me to apply to our local magistrates court to do that work experience, and it all just went on from then. Excellent. Um, so, what are the kind of attributes that Henderson Chambers are looking for in future pupils, um, and what can pupils expect from um, from their practice at Henderson Chambers later down the line? So, um, this is something that we we worked on quite hard. So we um, about four years ago we got in an occupational psychologist to help us with our recruitment techniques. And she pointed out something that actually on reflection was absolutely obvious, but came as a bit of a surprise to us, that the questions we were asking and the attributes we were looking for were not in any way related to the job. So we spent a long, uh, most of our time concentrating on people's CVs and their degree results and how many pupillages they've done and that sort of thing, all the stuff that people put into an application for pupillage. And she pointed out, why don't you ask about their advocacy skills I mean not in a sort of professional sense but in a sort of you know public speaking mooting you know sense why don't you ask them about their commitment to working hard in a team why don't you ask them about whether they can work independently and to deadlines i.e why don't we list the things the skills that barristers do that students or people applying for pupillage might have and ask them about that. So we we changed our criteria so that we're no longer obsessed with a first class degree from a really good university, and actually we're just looking for the skills that you're going to need to develop. So our attributes have have changed. We are now looking for people who are developing advocacy skills, people who are developing the skill of working independently, to under pressure, to deadlines, and sometimes as part of a team. So they are our, our criteria and the questions that we ask at interview are matched and, 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 and mapped to those criteria. So hopefully that is a more objective test as well, because we've, we've turned those criteria into something that can be objectively scored as objectively as, as it's possible to achieve, rather than the more subjective judgments of, about someone's CV and about their background, which I suspect wasn't the most helpful way of selecting a good barrister or a good member of chambers. So we we, we changed about three or four years ago and we feel it's had a really, a really sort of empowering effect. We feel like making better decisions. We feel like the interviews are better, they actually focus on what matters. Um, and hopefully we're getting people with the right skill set, which, you know, is, is a kind of obvious thing, but something we did need to, to make sure we were doing. And then in terms of what happens after pupillage, so one of the, one of the big differences uh, between our set and a lot of other sets who you might say are our competitors is that we have this focus on advocacy right from the second six. So, I mean, I, I, I met somebody at my silk ceremony at let's say a commercial set, who said to me, oh, I'm really looking forward to doing my first unled case. Now, we want our second six pupils to say that. You can't wait till you take silk. Like you, 
the key the key thing that clients are looking for from barristers is still advocacy consultative advice at a high level and a detailed level of course but the core part of the job is still being an advocate and so we want people to be advocates from the beginning so from the moment that our second sixes get their provisional license we send them to court and we send them to court on real cases for real clients just as if they were junior tenants and that is quite stressful and it is difficult but just like doctors eventually have to work on real patients pupils have to work on real cases and have real clients so that that is the golden thread that runs through chambers and that's how people develop their practices and we hope that our junior tenants have and it's certainly the case for me a mix of their own work which can be quite low value and low level as well as working as part of a team on a on a bigger case with a big with a city firm assisters and and leaders within and without chambers so we hope that our focus is on advocacy and that we give people a mix and a balance between their own cases and being led because that's the only way we think that one day they will be the leader they will have acquired those skills to lead a big case because they did a load of little cases or medium sized cases on their own yeah yeah no i i like the way that um you henderson chambers um gets their, gets their second six pupils to to go off and do their their cases and um and and speak in front of judges on their own i think that doing it that way and exposing pupils uh pupils to that kind of level of advocacy earlier on will help build their confidence sometimes i think that putting things off um can actually sometimes be slightly detrimental in the fact that um you're kind of building it up a little bit and and creating um and just by imagining that it could be potentially worse than it actually is so it's a bit like uh, ripping off a bandage or a plaster very quickly just get it over and done with and you realize that it's not scary and not daunting yeah. and it's the reason why you have chosen to become a barrister yeah and just Touching back on uh, what you look for in pupils, I think there's a very refreshing way of um, interviewing. And it sounds to me like you're really, um, instead of evaluating what the, um, the student can do at that time, you're looking to see what their potential is. Um, so I think that, that that's a really good take on it. So... Considering all of that, that you look for advocacy skills, um, commitment to working in a team individually and to deadlines, how can aspiring pupils um, start practicing that in order to be ready for the interview, would you say? What good examples have you seen? So one of the reasons why we moved to this objective criteria is because we, we were very conscious that there was a almost a kind of an arms race between applicants to have ever more impressive CVs. So people are going to yet more extraordinary lengths on their CV to mount up huge numbers of degrees, you know, like people are doing ever more, you know, graduate degrees and PhDs. Now I understand that can sometimes be because they don't get pupillage first or second or third time round and they got to, they go on to do other degrees and then there are these huge number of mini pupillages and we, we just want to strip it back and we just want people to tell us about themselves and their relevant skills um, these long lists of achievements are brilliant but they've got to be matched with a sort of narrative that you you find somewhere in the form to to provide a narrative that sets out um, you know the skills that we are looking for so you can use your experiences and you can use the fact that you built a bridge in africa or that you you worked you know for an ngo that that's great but we want we want you to say i had to do the following thing i had to lodge something um pro bono under time pressure and this is how i did it that's what we're looking for so great that all of our candidates have got this experience but we 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 just like them to to convey to us how that experience matches what we're looking for in a barrister, if that makes sense. 
I see. Yeah. So when they're doing whatever they're doing to get experience, they need to be very self-aware to kind of analyze what they're doing so they can they can say as you said this was time pressured they need to be self-aware when they're doing these things and be able to communicate that to you in their application say and when they're in front of you so saying it on the form is really important because sometimes people will just say uh this is what this was the role uh, I, I did a mini pupillage i did it at x chambers and the person i supervised did all these cases or went to court and did this sometimes they don't say and what occurred to me was I, what I learned about being a barrister was, or something that shows insight into the profession and without blowing their trumpet too much, how they feel like they could fit into that and, and are already developing the skills to deal with whatever the issue was. Yeah. It's like a bit like writing an essay. You need to make your point, explain it. Yeah. Evidence, the other way around, evidence, explain, and then link it back to the chambers, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think that's excellent advice. Um, so you've, you've touched on what pe- what um, people can expect from their second six. Uh, what can they expect from their first? And perhaps what else would they be doing in their second six? So it's a um, it's pupillage of four quarters. So you would have four different pupil supervisors. In the first quarter, you tend to do most of the work for your pupil supervisor because we tend to find that whichever bar course you've done or bar transfer course you you, there's still work to be done um there's still work to be done and we we don't want you making your mistakes um your early mistakes with other members of chambers because other members of chambers provide feedback that goes towards the tenancy decision so we if you if we, we want those mistakes to be made early uh, and we want them to be made just with your people supervisor who can help you work through those. So that tends to be the first seat. And then the second and third seats, they're the difficult ones. Uh, they're the ones where you will start to do work for other members of chambers. You, you will gather feedback forms from those members of chambers um, that, that gives you feedback on that work. You will do advocacy exercises, although we don't make pupils do advocacy exercises with opponents. We certainly don't pit one pupil against another. We regard that as some sort of torture that we wouldn't ask people to go through. So, but they're one-sided advocacy exercises and they're not in front of loads of members of chambers. They're just in front of uh, a member of chambers or a, uh, a judge who we bring in acting as judge and then someone else to assess it. Um, and then you head towards our tenancy decision, which is usually early July. Um, and you put all this evidence in front of the, the recruitment committee and we don't do voting in chambers. The recruitment committee makes the decision and it makes it based on the evidence in front of it, which are those forms I've talked about, the advocacy assessments and the every six weeks you'll do an appraisal with your pupil supervisor and be, those forms will be in there as well. And then the recruitment committee looks at all of that and makes a decision. Um, so the decision is not sent out to chambers. It's not a sort of election contest where you have to go around chambers getting votes. It is just a objective decision based on that evidence. We also take the view that um, whilst we are sensitive to the business needs of chambers, we also know that people are in independent practice and they have to build their own practice and get their own work. And therefore, if they are good enough, if they're good enough to be a tenant, we will hopefully be able to to give them a tenancy. We we don't you we don't often take into account unless there are exceptional circumstances the sort of amount of work there is in chambers because we're hoping that the new tenant will generate their own work. But they will be supported by chambers and there is chambers work to support our junior tenants. But we also want people to go out and get their own work. We want them to do marketing right from the beginning. The other thing I should mention um, is that we've always sent our pupils abroad for four weeks. So we used to send them to Brussels. We we had a partnership with a very interesting firm in Brussels, um, which had two English QCs who operated at that firm. Unfortunately, uh, and it's nothing to do with Brexit, I promise, but unfortunately, though the, the, the silk who was helping us with that ha, ha, has basically retired. 
And therefore, we had to look for another uh, opportunity abroad. And for the last three years, subject to COVID, our pupils have been spending four weeks in the Turks and Caicos Islands. Conrad Griffiths, uh, QC, is a leading advocate out in uh, the TCI in the Caribbean, and he hosts our pupils for four weeks. Um, and it's not all lying on the beach, although our pupils do seem to be accommodated in a very nice beach condo and with all expenses paid, uh, including their flights. Um, but they they actually see advocacy in the Caribbean courts because uh, Conrad is first and foremost uh, an advocate. Um, so, yeah, that's a nice little four week bonus in the Caribbean uh, that we also provide. Very impressive, I must say. Um... So you mentioned uh, that pupils can go off and do their own marketing within the chambers um, and bring in their own work. Are they, I understand that um, when in their pupillage, they're expected to do a range of work across the practice, your core practice areas. Um, but is there a time where they can say, oh, I really like to do this. Um, I prefer doing that, not that, in order to specialise their practice or become um, an expert in, in, a, in a practice area? Or does that come later on down the line? So we're in no way opposed uh, to specialisation. I have to say, though, that I suspect the specialisations that have developed in chambers are at least 50% luck. They're at least right place at the right time. So you can definitely get yourself involved in particular areas. You can write about particular areas. You can try and attract work in particular areas. And you can also say, actually, I'm only really wanting to practice in a particular area. It's quite rare that that happens in our chambers, but it's fine. But mostly it's luck. <laughs> mostly the cases that you are lucky enough to get are the ones that then drive your specialism, if that makes sense. It does. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, and then do uh, pupils have, a, have, a, have the opportunity to get called to the bar in um, the Caribbean court when, when they're over there? Um, I, I haven't come across that. They're only there for four weeks. The other thing that uh, has happened, and this is increasingly happening, is that um, these jurisdictions are no, no longer uh, automatically grant rights to English barristers. You probably heard that the big change has happened, for example, in India, which has got very protectionist and won't allow English barristers just to be called. Similar restrictions are developing in Singapore and Hong Kong. And actually, just for our pupil to go out and do four weeks unpaid work experience in the Turks and Caicos Islands requires both an, a, quite a strict immigration permission and it also requires permission from the local bar council, which is not straightforward. So actually seeking those local admissions is no longer as easy and as straightforward. So it, it could well uh, it could well be something uh, that could happen if you wanted to go and do a particular case, but seeking a more permanent admission abroad, even in common law countries, is really quite difficult. I see. Thank you for um, thank you for letting us know about that. I'd like to take a moment to speak about the University of Law, which is the university I decided to study my LPC at. The University of Law is the sponsor of this podcast and makes it possible for us to continue bringing these episodes to you. So we really appreciate you supporting us by supporting our sponsors. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. The University of Law's experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life legal experience which can boost employability. They offer a range of undergraduate and postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students excel at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses courses to help students work and study at the same time. If you'd like to find out more about the courses on offer, please click the link in the description box of the podcast.
So I thought it would be interesting now to talk about some of the cases that you have been involved in. And uh, perhaps we could start with the nuclear test veteran saga case. Um, if you would, wouldn't mind um, just explaining the facts of the case, the procedural history and who you are acting for. Yeah, certainly. So, um, I mean, this, this all started quite a long time ago now. I was a junior member of Chambers uh, at the time and a junior member of the team that acted on behalf of the MOD. The case started off in the High Court, went all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, and by the time we got to the Supreme Court, the barrister team was easily 20 odd. Uh, it, it was a huge case. It is a very, very long running saga. Um, it's been going on ever since the 1970s. And essentially, um, when Britain conducted its nuclear testing just after the Second World War in the 1950s in Australia and uh, in the South Pacific uh, Islands, a, a huge number, hundreds of thousands of national servicemen were sent out to help with those tests because they required whole villages and towns to be created from scratch, uh, including hospitals, accommodation, airstrips. So huge numbers of troops and Navy personnel were sent to Australia and to the South Pacific. And they were all very young at the time. They, they would have been uh, national servicemen, so not, not, not full-time members of the armed forces, but doing their national service. They're in their very early 20s. And a lot of them understandably became concerned that having been in very close proximity to huge nuclear, to the explosion and testing of, of, of huge nuclear weapons at a very early ex exp uh, experimental stage, likely caused injury to their health. The one thing that they were most concerned about was cancer. And they had attempted to bring proceedings against the government many times. Uh, the case, by the time we had got hold of it had in the 1980s already been to the House of Lords it had been to the European Court of Human Rights and had failed and this was the latest attempt to bring a claim for personal injury in front of the English courts it, it, it initially the point we took on behalf of the MODs unsurprisingly limitation because this all happened in the 1950s Mr Justice Foskett at first instance decided that uh, whilst the claims were time barred, he would extend time under Section 33 because it was a personal injury action and because he thought the claims had merit and they shouldn't be shut out on limitation grounds. The Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court took a very different view. They had an enormous amount of sympathy for the veterans, but basically they would not extend under Section 33 because it Still today, it's the case that it's very hard to prove that a cancer was caused by a toxic agent. I know that sounds may sound a bit uh, surprising, but there are only very few toxic agents and cancers that are sufficiently associated for it to pass the balance of probabilities causation test. One of which famously is asbestos and mesothelioma. One, although not completely settled legally, but I think in the court of public opinion, we all agree that smoking and lung cancer are probably connected. Although there are lots of other causes of lung cancer that's quite hard to exclude sometimes. But beyond that, there are very few other cancers that you can link to a toxic agent. Uh, and particularly ionizing radiation it's, it's clearly when you are exposed to it in high levels, dangerous, and it can cause cancer. But showing that a particular cancer, particularly one that you uh, are unfortunately experiencing very late in life, was linked to radiation exposure earlier in life, say in your 20s, that is really difficult to prove, if not impossible, which is basically what the um, Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court said, with a great deal of regret, um, that's what um, the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court said, which is why the nuclear test factions claim did not succeed. I think this case is really interesting. And in preparation for this uh, discussion here today, I did read some of it, not all of it, but some of it. And um, cases that I saw the 
were referenced were cases like Wilshire and Essex, um, the material contribution test of Bonington and castings, and the self-limiting in indivisible disease case of Fairchild. Now it sounds like you have touched on all of these. Um, the you know the um, that you need to really prove that this uh, exposure to a certain chemical caused cancer. Um, but yeah, I thought that seeing these cases in action um, was very interesting because it, they're cases that get brought up in the taught module um, on the LLB. So um, I thought that, yeah, it was, it's an interesting case to read and to see how these cases are used in the, in the decision. So um, definitely worth a read to any, um, any student lawyers who are interested in taught, I would say. Yeah. So what, in your opinion, should uh, personal injury lawyers or future personal injury lawyers take away from this judgment? Well, I think ultimately, um, no matter, I would say that no matter how morally well-deserving your clients are, uh, and it's not for me to say that about the clients because I was active with MOD, but I can see why you would say that about these clients. They are, they are veterans. Uh, some of them have suffered with some awful cancers. Um, but you still have to prove your case legally on the relevant legal tests. And that, that really is what the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court were saying. We're really sorry. We understand the anger. We understand the emotional upset and the morality of the situation. But you, you cannot prove these cases. So even though you could see that Mr Justice Foskett was moved by the wider merits, he shouldn't have let the cases go forward because really on careful analysis, they couldn't prove causation. So the, the message is no matter how good sort of morally that you, you, you have uh, a case, you've still got to pass the legal test. Thank you for, for sharing that. So if we could now talk about the Siroxat uh, group case, uh, the pharmaceutical group actions, um, if you could, again, explain who you were acting for, facts of the case, uh, procedural history. Yeah, sure. Um, so I acted for GSK, um, the producer of Siroxat. Siroxat is one of the main SSRI antidepressant drugs. Um, that is on the market and basically the claim was that it's it's hard to discontinue Siroxat so um, once you are on the drug it is difficult to discontinue and you have bad side effects when you try and come off the drug. The problem that the claimants had was that 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 is true of all antidepressants so the way in which they pitched their case was to say that Siroxat was worst in class. So to say that Siroxat um, was worse when it came to discontinu discontinuation symptoms than the rest of the other antidepressant SSRI drugs. So that was the, that was the battle between uh, the claimant defendant. Is that the right approach? To deciding whether a drug is safe or unsafe under the Consumer Protection Act. Can you compare it to its peers in that way? And just because it's better or worse than its peers, does that matter in determining whether it's a safe product under the Consumer Protection Act? So, so what exactly was in dispute here and, and what was the holding and the rationale of the case? Well, it was a very interesting case. So it originally started out uh, a decade before I got involved and it had suffered from all sorts of legal aid and funding problems, probably because the case that the claimants were trying to bring was, was pretty novel. Um, because usually the way in which we look at a product liability case is that we look at the benefits the product gives and then we look at the downsides of the product. Because, for example, if you need a life-saving cancer drug 
it will give you hopefully the benefit of prolonging your life but there may be some huge downsides all your hair might fall out or you may feel sick every day and we if you just looked at the downsides then the drug would be unsafe but we don't we look mm-hmm. we look at we trade off those downsides against those benefits so you have to do the same with an antidepressant antidepressant may in extreme case stop you um committing suicide but it may have these awful side effects at the same time but the claimants weren't doing that the claimants were sort of saying we want to have a competition between the different antidepressants Right. and say on one particular criterion so discontinuation symptoms you are worse and we essentially got the the the, the judge to rule even before the trial got started that that is just the wrong test mm-hmm. so that so it was listed for a whole half a year's worth of trial with all the witnesses lined up all the many experts but it never got beyond the first few days because the judge just ruled that the, the claimants were approaching the case in a legally incorrect way. They did go to the Court of Appeal during the trial. Uh, the trial was paused, so I wouldn't go to the Court of Appeal to challenge that, but the Court of Appeal backed the trial judge and said, that's not the way to judge whether a product is unsafe under the Act. Very interesting. Um, even, if, even if that was a somewhat way to approach a, a, a case like this would the pharmaceutical company be able to escape liability just by putting a warning sign on perhaps the packet so that that is a very uh interesting point so the extent to so, so first of all product the definition of a product includes its packaging and includes warning signs so when you are defending a product you often will ask the court to take into account warnings. Mm. There's not actually been a judgment yet, even within the European Union, because this the, this is all based on a directive, on, on whether a warning is, is going to win the day. It, the answer probably, the legal answer probably is, it all goes into the holistic mix. Yeah. So if you have warned against uh, a, a side effect, but it's a really serious side effect. Yeah. And you, but you really clearly warned that this could, you know, there's a likelihood of this happening. Is that sufficient? The, there was a case in France about uh, a contraceptive, and contraceptives um, are like vaccines. You give them, people take them even though they're not ill. So the French court said there, because you're taking this drug when you're not ill, even warning somebody that they might die from, you know, a, a, a heart attack, for example, is not enough because the person's not ill. Mm. Mm. So there is a diff- there's a different approach between different different types of products. Yeah, um, that that reminds me of a case that I um, I studied in consumer law when uh, a condom broke and the consumer wanted to say that. You know, the warning sign wasn't sufficient, but because condoms aren't 99% effective, they managed to escape that liability because the consumer should or should be aware that they don't always work. So, um, yeah, yeah, it just reminded me of that. uh, It's like the action against McDonald's because they didn't tell consumers (laughs) that their coffee was hot. Right. It's like, come on. Coffee is... You buy it because it's going to be hot, right? Unless it's yeah. iced. So I was disappointed after that. I always got lukewarm, lukewarm coffee from there. Um, yeah. And at one point, their coffee wasn't too bad. So, what do you think the key takeaways are from from that case? So, um, so, so, so Roxar is interesting on a number of levels. Um, so, just to finish the story, to give the takeaway. Once uh, the case was dealt with by the court, that wasn't the end, I'm afraid, because okay. the, 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 the claim was funded. So it's one of these cases now brought with, with, with a funder providing funding. So I'm afraid that GSK made an application for the funder to pay the £8 million worth of costs that had been run up. Because essentially, 
the funder should have been advised what the law was. And if they got good advice or even average advice, you'd have known that the case they were running did not accord with the law. So the judge did then impose a cost order payable by the funder on the indemnity basis because you know that everybody should have known on the claimant side that the case couldn't really fly mm-hmm. um so you know it's 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 gone down i think if you if you read about the commentary on it it's gone down as a, it's a clear warning to funders that they do have to check the merits of the cases they are funding because there, there will be cost repercussions right um if if they back a case where the um, where the funding is not secure, and actually, not that I'm involved, of course, but what's happened is actually the funder has started an action against the claimant's solicitors. So it's okay. a case that's carry on mushrooming. Everyone's blaming each other for not doing their homework. Well, that usually happens when things go wrong. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for um, sharing your insights into the Swaxat case. Um, so if we could talk a little bit about um, the Total case that's um, also with climate change. Yeah. Now, um, again, if you could just explain who you're acting for, facts of the case, procedural history, and uh, what was in, dis- in dispute by the parties, or in dispute, should I say? Yeah, so this this is a case which is pending for the Court of Appeal. So I, I'm going to keep my sort of description sort of neutral and and just the facts. But essentially, um, so Mozambique, very poor country uh, in the in the far south of uh, Africa, but it has offshore in the north of the country a huge amount of gas, and as we all know right now people are looking for supplies of gas that don't come out of Russia. And um, as as you may know, there's this facility for governments to provide export finance. So if I'm a company in Britain and I want to supply goods and services to this gas project in Mozambique, that can be backed by insurance and guarantees from the British government to support that export. But then NGOs like, let's say, Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace, they say that the government should not provide that insurance and guarantees where the export is going to a project that is out of alignment with climate change treaties and regulations. So in this case, Friends of the Earth brought a judicial review against the government saying that the government should not provide insurance and guarantees to support exports for developing gas off Mozambique. And I act for Total because Total are the operators of the gas field and they were interested parties in that judicial review. Now, if, if you want to understand how legally controversial climate change is, then if you have the stomach for it, I do commend to you reading the judgment because, so the divisional court has two judges. So you are always running the risk of a tie break. And the traditional rule is if you have a tie break, you have to do the case all over again. It very rarely happens, but sometimes very rarely you have to do the case all over again. And Lord Justice Stuart Smith, and Mrs. Justice Thornton disagreed on what the Paris Agreement actually requires of a government thinking of funding a project abroad, abroad that's going to run the risk of increasing uh, emissions, or at least that's the allegation. And so they disagreed. So there are two rival judgments that you can go and read, and you can go and see how controversial it is. What does the Paris Agreement mean? Um, how does it affect governments? How does it affect finance streams? They could not agree. Now, luckily, we are not doing it all again because Mrs. Justice Thornton agreed that we should uh, assume, if you like, that Lord Justice Stuart Smith's judgment carried the day. And that's so that we don't have to go through the costs of the hearing again. And the case is now going before the Court of Appeal, who three, 
I would assume three judges will now have to decide whether they agree with Lord Justice Stuart Smith, whether they agree with Mr Justice Thornton, or whether they have their own third, fourth, fifth views on what the Paris Agreement actually means and how, if and how, it is legally enforceable. It does make me um, laugh just a little bit that there's still not a great deal amount of clarity on the on the Paris Agreement. Um, and I, I just wondered if um, there was an argument for um, for Total to say that they were offsetting, you know, um, dangerous carbons. Is there an argument there? Well, uh, you're touching upon the the very uh, the the very knob of all of this. Like, how do you assess the impact of a project, and are you allowed to take into account future technologies? carbon capture, carbon storage, the fact that the gas might be used to replace coal, which is dirtier. These are all the issues that have to be um, debated. And the thing is, is that the Paris Agreement, because it's the product of negotiations between sovereign states, like you saw what happened in the last COP in Glasgow. Yeah. Because it has to be a compromise, the final result, well, first of all, it's a bit of a, it's, it's not what everybody wanted. And second of all, the language is drafted in committee in, in, in to lawyers. You read it and you think, what on earth does that mean? It's aspirational. It's, it's devoid of any concrete commitments. And the Paris Agreement, some of the parties in this, this uh, case are saying, suffers from that problem, which makes it really hard to be legally enforceable. Whereas Friends of the Earth say, look, we must all agree that we can't allow another project that increases emissions. That mu- Whatever the Paris Agreement says, it must mean that. Otherwise, we've got a problem. So that, that is the argument they're putting forward, and that those are the sorts of arguments they're going to, going to be before the Court of Appeal. Excellent. I will put the uh, the judgment in the show notes of this episode for our listeners who would like to um, who would like to read the judgment. Yeah, I think I think that's a that that's a good idea because it's one of those rare situations where two judges are are at loggerheads. So it's it's worth seeing that judicial dynamic, which is quite rare to see on a one on one situation. Obviously, we get majorities in the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court. But a one-on-one situation is is quite rare. Excellent. Well, thank you for um, for for that. So, what do you think that future ESG or energy lawyers should take note of um, in this case? Well, I suppose it will depend on where it ends up in the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court. But if we end up in a situation where the way in which the Paris Agreement is worded means that the the court it's effectively saying it's not justiciable because it, it, these are aspirational goals set for sovereign states. It's not something that courts can, can use as tools to enforce or to interpret. Then for the next set of lawyers who are involved in the next treaty, mm. taking into account that situation, if that's where this case ends up. case may end up somewhere completely different with the Court of Appeals Supreme Court saying, Paris Agreement does have meaning and it does have these hard, hard-edged obligations. But it's but I think in terms of going forward and the way in which we come together as a planet and as a group of sovereign nations to, to lay down rules that can be enforced, well, we've got to do that. We've got to actually lay down rules that can be enforced and query whether, you know, particularly given the last COP in Glasgow, whether we'd come anywhere near that. Thank you very much for that insight. Um, it just it makes me think about the first case that we spoke about, where um, where barristers must just you know follow the law instead of um, you know following these aspirations or, or what they think is maybe the morally right thing to do. Um, so yeah, thank you for for providing that insight of yours. And maybe you could come back on the show once this has uh, gone to the Court of Appeal and to the to the very top, and um, we can discuss the the overall outcome. I think that would be that would be a fun thing to do. 
Um, so drawing to the end of the interview now. So Adam, I just wanted to know if you have any final words of advice or wisdom for the student or your listeners. I think things have got a little bit better uh, in terms of the chances to get a, a pupillage. I think things were really bad a few years ago. There, there, there were too many people competing for too few too few places and the competition was very fierce. I know it's still very difficult. I know that people are taking, you know, several rounds to, to secure a pupillage. But my message still is not to give up. Uh, if, if it's your passion, if it's what you want to do, then let that come across. Let, let that don't don't be scared of letting that come across. Don't be scared of using the fact that this is your third or fourth round come across to those interviewing you. Because at the end of the day, the panel will know, do know, in whichever chambers you're being interviewed, that it's a really hard job. And determination and commitment is really important. So don't give up and use the fact that you haven't given up to your advantage. Thank you so much for that advice. I think it that it's just very, very helpful for people to hear. I, I know, you know, go, going through the process myself, um, writing these applications and speaking to other people who have gone through the process, um, that people can tend to um, follow what they think is the the only way to secure pupillage or a training contract. And there are certain ways of doing it, as we've spoken about, you know, um, when writing an application, perhaps follow the PEEL method. But at the end of the day, I think it's very important to show your um, personality and to let that come across. So um, I think that's fantastic advice that you have given, Adam. So thank you very much for that. And thank you so much for being a guest on the show um, and speaking about all your very interesting cases and what it takes to become a pupil at Henderson Chambers. Um, I've had a great time chatting with you. Well, thank you very much for having me uh, as a guest. And uh, thank you very much for you showing interest in, in our chambers and our pupil scheme. Thank you. Absolutely my pleasure. And thank you to everyone for tuning in to another episode of The Student Lawyer. And we'll see you back here again next time. To hear more of The Student Lawyer's podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join The Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.